0: Well, good morning, Trinity Baptist Church. It's so good to be with you. I was, uh, as uh, Brother Dwayne was saying, I was called on last minute. And I was able to drive up here. It was a good little drive, and I actually found out that uh, you actually—I think you had Shane McMillan a couple weeks ago, or something like that. Yes, and uh, my dad was actually his assistant pastor way back when. So, little small connections make that kind of cool. So, it's kind of be good to be back in this area. I was born in Lakeland, and all that kind of stuff. So, it's good to be back in this general vicinity. Anyways, you can uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 this morning. Luke chapter 24. I want to speak to you about a really important topic, really important topic, because I think there's a problem in churches that I think a lot of people aren't necessarily, they don't really know that it's a problem. They don't really realize that they are doing something the wrong way. And I think that it's a problem that kind of goes under the radar and goes under people's noses. They don't even realize that it's occurring. And it's how we read our Bibles. You know, one of the most important aspects of being a Christian is reading our Bibles and getting into God's Word. And that's how we know God and become familiar with Him. And really, the only thing worse than not reading our Bible is to read our Bible wrongly, is to read it incorrectly. And so, really, there's three categories of biblical hermeneutics, as they say. That's the fancy school term for Bible interpretation, Bible study. There's three ways you can study the Bible. The first way is called exegesis. That's a fancy word for just literally saying what the Bible says. I'm sure that you are familiar with that with your former pastor. He was, he was conducting exegetical sermons, as they say, where he's just taking the scripture and relaying it to you and applying it to your life. That's the proper way to interpret the Bible. But there's also some other ways that are incorrect. One of them is called eisegesis. That's where you come to the Bible and you don't let it say what it says, but you read into it what you want it to say. A lot of preachers, a lot of pastors all over the nation are performing this type of sermon in churches all over the country. Eisegesis, they're bringing in their bias and then their interpretation and their agendas, so to speak, and making the Bible fit their agenda. So they make the Bible say what they want to say. That's eisegesis. And then there's another way that it's, it's, I think we don't often realize that we're doing it as we're doing it. It's called narcissism. This is where we read ourselves into the Bible and make the Bible really all about us. It puts the center and the focus of the Bible on us. And I want to prove to you this morning that that is not how we are to read our Bibles. That's not what the purpose of the Bible is this is the only, as I said, the only thing worse than not reading your Bible is to read it incorrectly and to come away from it with something that is incorrect. You know, the amazing thing about our Bible is that it interprets itself. You know, Jesus everywhere in the Gospels, he was interpreting the Old Testament. He was interpreting some of the passages in the Prophets and in in the Mosaic Law. And so we get the best interpretation of the Bible right here from Jesus himself. So believe it or not, Luke 24 is going to show us how to read our Bibles. Let's start in verse 13. You might remember this story about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Verse 13 says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs, which is about seven miles. And so these two guys are on this road to Emmaus in verse 14, and they talk together of all these things which had happened. And so these two disciples, they weren't part of a Jesus' initial, uh, initial guys that he called. They had started following Jesus sometime after his ministry started. And these two guys, one we find out his name is Cleopas, and the other guy he is unnamed. They're on the road to Jerusalem, and this is about three days after the crucifixion of Christ. You find that in verse 21. It's been about three days. And these disciples are talking about all this uproar, all this stuff that had happened with this Jesus of Nazareth. And so verse 15, jump there. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And so the, Jesus appears right in the middle of these guys as they're on the road to Emmaus. He appears right with them. But they don't know who he is. They don't realize that it's Jesus. And he appears and he asks them this curious question. He's, he says, you guys, you guys look really down. You look really sad. Why are you so sad? And I love their reaction. Look at verse 18. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas... Answered and said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast not, hast not thou known the things which are come to pass there in these days? Basically, he's saying, Where have you been for the last couple of days? There's been this huge uproar, this huge ruckus concerning this Jesus of Nazareth. He's been crucified and all this kind of stuff. Have you, have you been living under a rock? Where have you been? And Jesus, he continues. He presses on them. Look at verse 19. And he said, What things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it even so as the women had said, but they saw him not you no, know, So what's curious is they tell him all these things, and what's interesting is to note is that they were banking on Jesus to fulfill something that is not what he was supposed to come and fulfill. If you look at what he says, that uh, look at verse 21. But we had trusted that it had been he what should have redeemed Israel. Now, obviously, these two guys, they had kind of been misunderstanding what Jesus had come to do. They had bought into this old, what they call the Jewish zealot tradition, which is the belief that the Messiah was to come and he was going to overthrow Rome. So basically the Messiah was a prince and a king that would come and lead a glorious coup d'etat, so to speak, a glorious um, revolt against the Roman Empire and bring Israel back to its former glory, back to when under the days of King David and such and such like that, they, they, they believed that Jesus was this guy. They believed that Jesus was going to lead this revolt and restore Israel back to their political and military dominance. And they were pinning their hopes of Je- on, on this Jesus of Nazareth to lead this insurrection. So therefore, when Jesus died, their hopes died too. Their dreams died too. They dreamed that Jesus would bring Israel out of the Roman regime, and so when Jesus died, they were confused. That's why they were discussing, as it says, these things on the road to Emmaus. They were confused that the crucifixion of Christ had crushed their hopes. And look at what Jesus does. Look at verse 25. Then he, that is Jesus, said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ, to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? Jesus calls them fools. Hadn't they been reading their scriptures? Hadn't they been understanding what they had been reading this whole time? That this is exactly what the Old Testament had prophesied about. Their view of God, you could say, was too low. It was too earthy. They just believed that he was just going to come and bring more earthly pleasure back to them, back to when they had been in the days of King David. But that's not, that's not what Jesus had come to do. In verse 27, and here it is, verse 27 and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So you see here that this is what Jesus is about to do. He's revealing a startling truth that the Bible is all about him. The Bible from beginning to end is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he is the, the focal point, the center. You know, these, these disciples have been reading their Bible wrongly as if it concerned them. It was about them returning to their glory, about Israel returning to its dominance. And so often, I think we do the same. As I said earlier, we read our Bibles narcissistically. We read ourselves into it and make it about us. And a good, I guess you could say this, a good snapshot of our society is is what we read. I like to read a lot of books. Um, My wife knows this. I probably read too many books at one time. I think I've been closing a lot of books and finishing them, which is good, because I was reading about six at one time, and that's not very efficient at all to try and get good reading. Um, But I, I like to read a lot of books, and I think a good snapshot of our society is what we're reading. If you just look at what's on the bestsellers list, you can see where our society is, reading books like Fifty Shades of Grey or Game of Thrones or Harry Potter and all these sorts of crazy books that are out there that are just feeding these wrong ideologies into kids' hearts and lives. And I think also, too, we could say that it's what we're not reading, hence the Bible. But the three most best-selling genres among publishers are, um, in no particular order, uh, uh, children's literature, so children's book, romance novels, and then self-help. You can go into any bookstore, and the largest section by far is going to be the self-help section. Even Christian bookstores have self-help sections where they have books that can tr- help you have you know, your best life now or have, your, have a, a better version of you. And so I think this is a very telling thing, that mankind knows that there's something wrong. He knows that there's something inherently wrong with himself that he needs to fix. There's something that I need to change to get better at. There's something that I need to alter to make my life better And mankind knows there's something wrong, but inherently he has gone to a wrong source in order to fix that problem, and he goes to himself. You know, we're trapped in this mindset of a guy who wrote a book of this title of having our best life now. We're, We're trapped in this idea of becoming a better you. That if we can only fashion a, a better version of ourselves, a more wealthier version of ourselves, a, a healthier version of ourselves, a version of ourselves with a bigger car or a nicer house or a better body, we can sort of achieve this some sort of happiness on this earth. You know, that's what we're all after, right? You know, it says it in our Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's what we're all after. But these pursuits, I think, they are just leaving us... Emptier than before. I think they are just really, just really crummy God replacements. You know, there's a, a great, um, an old ancient uh, philosopher by the name of uh, Blaise Pascal, and he said this the infinite abyss, and that by that he was meaning the soul, the internal soul of man, the infinite abyss in the, or the longing for something more can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God Himself. You see, man knows that something's wrong, but he's going to all these other avenues in order to find the solution to that problem, instead of realizing that the problem it can be fixed only by Jesus. Nothing else will work. You know, man um, is, an, uh, or excuse me, unfortunately, this philosophy, this idea that man can fix himself by changing himself, has kind of crept into our churches crept into a lot of churches all across the nation where the, now pastors are preaching this way. They want to try and help you get better. They want to fix you. And so instead of preaching the Bible, they're te- preaching self-help pr- sermons with a little Jesus sprinkled on top. And that's not what the Bible is here. This is not how we are to read our Bibles. They try and, they try and treat the scriptures as if it's God's divine self-help manual. That's what they're all about as if it contains some sort of secret or some sort of code for becoming a better you that if you just put all these things into this bowl this mixing bowl of your heart you'll become a better person but the start this by the bible The read this about well i only ask you this question is the bible a recipe book how many of you like to cook you can raise your hands if you don't like to cook. i i don't really like to cook and by saying that i like to cook if i were to say that that would just mean I can follow a recipe. I know what a cup is and what a tablespoon is sometimes. And I know the difference between vegetable and olive oil. One time, my brother and my cousin, they were trying to make brownies. And they got vegetable oil and olive oil mixed. And those two things, they, you can't replace one with the other. And they were very terrible brownies, <laughs> um, needless to say. Uh, but sometimes we treat the Bible this... The same way you know a recipe is really rigid right you have to follow the steps exactly or else you're going to end up like my brother and his cousin you're going to end up with a mess If you don't follow the steps precisely as they are, if you don't have the right amount of measuring cups and the right amount of this ingredient and such ingredient, and you cook it for the right amount of time at the correct temperature and all those sorts of things, if you don't follow strictly and adhere to all the rigid uh, ingredients and guides, you're going to end up with a mess. And sometimes I feel like we treat the Bible the same way. As if we can just mix in all these things and if we follow all these, these guidelines and put all these spiritual ingredients together that we're going to end up better than we were before. You know, Galatians 5, we know that. Galatians 5.22 is the fruit of the Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You know, sometimes I think we think that if we just take those things, and if we mix in a little Bible reading, we mix in some effort and a little holiness, and then just a dash of grace, bam, that's a good Christian. But we forget the first word, or actually the the third word of that verse, of verse 22 in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit. You realize that these, these things here, love, joy, peace, and so on, They are not how you become a Christian. They are fruits of becoming a Christian. That The fruit of the Spirit is just that. They are are the consequences of being saved by Jesus Christ. That this is what a saved life looks like. That when you are saved by the Gospel, that this is what your life will turn out to be. Not by some sort of you uh, changing yourself or some sort of effort, but God will do this through His Spirit. The fact is, the fruit of the Spirit is not a prescription for Christianity. It's a description of the holy life. It's a description of what the life lived under the gospel looks like. This is what the Christian life should look like. You know, you could say this, that they're not precursors of your salvation, but they're consequences of Jesus' substitution and the Spirit's transformation. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. And that's what this Bible is. It's, it's, it's helping you to realize that, that it's not a recipe book. That you can just throw these things in, and then that's how you get saved. Is the Bible just a rule book? You no. Know, there's a lot of rules in the Bible. There's a lot of places where God says, thou shalt not. And he's trying to get across to the point that there are certain things that his people are to avoid. And certainly there are many guidelines in the Bible, but I think there is one sad thing, that if you've ever had an opportunity to witness to someone, they, believe, they don't want to become a Christian because they feel like that they are sad. I've, I, I think maybe you've had this said to you before. I have. Because they have too many rules. I think that is so sad that when people think that Christians, by the, that it's not your think of the... Some, some of the... These were my rules... You will have joy, you will have peace, you will have happiness. And if you don't, he's into us there to show that is this that we can't keep the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it's there to show us that if you try, you can try and get there, but you, you won't be able to because you're human and we fail and we sin over and over again. So the point of the law there, as it says in James chapter uh, 5, I believe, or chapter 2, the law is there really to serve as a mirror the law is there to show you who you are, which is what? A desperate sinner in need of Jesus. That's what the law is there to do. You know, if you want to try and get to heaven, if you, if you think that the Bible, as some other denominations do, they think the Bible is a rule book, and bam, Matthew says that the is perfect, and by barometer, heaven three, there's that's guess that suction for us. You see, the Bible isn't about you. The Bible isn't a list of, of heroes it's not a, a great it, certainly there are heroes in the Bible. There's, there are lots of people that we should try and be like, but the Bible is not a catalogue of morally upright people that we should model our lives after. Would you want your son to be like David, a murdering adulterer, or would you want your son to be like Paul, who persecuted the church way, way beyond what we can even imagine? Or people like all over the Bible that we usually try and we, we know that they are good, and they have done good things, but it's because of the work of Jesus in them. You know, it's not a divine collection of Aesop's fables. Are you familiar with Aesop's fables? They have a cute little story with a great moral at the end. Sometimes I think we think that the Old Testament is like that. Some, I remember thinking that when I was growing up, that the Old Testament was these awesome fables that had a great moral Lesson at the end of them. But that's not what they're there for. It's not about you having your best life now. It's not about how you can change. You know, one writer says it this way the Bible is not first a recipe book for Christian living, but it is a revelation book about Jesus, who is the answer to our unchristian living. You know, the plot line of the Bible, therefore, is Jesus centered. He is the hero. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 12. So the point is, the Bible is all about Jesus. The whole thing is about Christ, the Messiah, the heaven-sent Redeemer and Rescuer. The Old Testament, therefore, predicts him, and the New Testament presents him. And to read our Bibles, if it's primarily about us, is to really lose sight of the big picture, Have you heard of that saying, it's to lose sight of the forest for the trees? We're looking at all the trees, and we're missing the big, big picture of Scripture. You've missed the entire point. And the Bible isn't just a collection of stories, as I said. It's not divine Aesop's fables. It tells one story about one figure, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in Acts 17. And Paul, as his manner was, went into unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them. This is when he was at the church at Thessalonica. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Or as it says in Acts 18, for he, that is Apollos, might mightily convince the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. All in all, throughout the scriptures, we are are given more and more evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Bible tells his story. Beginning to end, it shows how God would fulfill his plan of redemption and fulfill his plan of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. As it says in John 5, verse 38, And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Here Jesus was speaking to the the Pharisees, who believed that if, just as I was saying earlier, that if they had just followed all these rules, they would be saved. They thought that in the scriptures was salvation, but no, it's in Jesus Christ who we are pointed to by the Scriptures. They testify of me. That's what Jesus was saying. You think that the Scriptures themselves give you salvation, but you've missed the point. You're merely looking at the trees and not the forest. Jesus says, the Scriptures point to me. The whole Bible is a portrait of Christ. You know, he's not just a part of the biblical narrative. He's the point of the biblical narrative. Every story, you could say, casts his shadow. Acts chapter 8, 34. This is when Philip was ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he says this, or or relates this to us. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet of this, of himself or some other man. And if you remember, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Isaiah, most likely Isaiah chapter 53, that great account there. And, And then Philip says this, he op- then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. He showed him from the Old Testament how Jesus was going to come and fulfill exactly what God had planned. The Bible is the good news, the good news of Jesus, not of us somehow making ourselves better, but of how Jesus comes and saves us from our sins. It reveals the very heart of Christ which was to die on the cross, to rise again, and to call people to repentance. If, you look at, if you're still in Luke 24, look at verse 44 with me. And the, now, by this time, he is with the 11, apostles, the 11 disciples. He's ministering and fellowshipping with them, and he says this, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, verse 44, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it was written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So you see, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. The stories, the prophecies, the ordinances, the victories, the failures, everything. It points to a greater redeemer, a greater king, a greater prophet to come. Colossians two seventeen says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is the substance of Christ. Those things were just a shadow. Or Hebrews 10, 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The meaning was that he, the writer of Hebrews was talking about the law, and he was saying that if you think that, if you still have to adhere to that law to make yourself holy, you've missed the point of those ordinances. They were just a shadow. They were just an echo of what was to come, which was that Jesus was the better sacrifice. The Old Testament shows us the need for a rescuer and a redeemer. Your Bible in the Old Testament is very gritty. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of sin in the Old Testament. It's there to show us something very important, that we need a Savior Through the promises and the symbols and the pictures of salvation, deliverance and redemption were promised and were pointed forward to the actual fulfillment of them at the gospel, at the cross of Christ, the place where once and for all Jesus defeated death and hell. All of Scripture points to Jesus. It's about him. He's the climax of every theme in the Bible. If you think about it, he is the promised seed from Genesis 3. He is the brazen serpent from Numbers 21. He is the greater prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He is Emmanuel, God with us from Isaiah chapter 7. He is the promised heir of David, the coming Messiah, the ruler of Israel from Isaiah chapter 9. He is everywhere in your Bible. It's pointing to Jesus. He is the true and better version of every character in the Bible. Let me read you this passage from a sermon I was listening to. He says this, the preacher, Jesus is the true and better Adam, who passed the test in the garden of Eden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has, now, um, has blood that now cries out for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king, forgiving those who betrayed and sold him, and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the Passover lamb, the innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of the death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true vine, the true bread. The Bible's about you. It's not about you. It's about him. And I was so struck with that, that the Bible everywhere shows us Jesus. Every sermon, every subject of every sermon should point to Christ. So I, I like reading Charles Spurgeon if you 're familiar with him he 's one of my favorite uh, writers, and he said this: A sermon without Christ as its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in conception, a crime in execution he 's saying that everywhere Christ should be the point, Christ should be the theme as it, as Paul says in first corinthians i And and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have nothing else to boast in or to glory in save the cross. Not our talents, not our transformation, not our wisdom, not our skill, not our eloquence, not our ability, not our works. It's Jesus and him alone. Galatians six fourteen, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Paul got this. He knew that everywhere and every place it was pointing to Jesus, and that Jesus is his life. Jesus isn't just something that he was added that was added into his life. Jesus was his life. The bigger picture of Scripture is that God loved you when you were his enemy. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God for that. That while we were his enemies, while we had nothing, wanted nothing to do with God, Jesus died for us. He sent his son, God did, to die for our sins, the truest display of love. As it says in John 15, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You know what the gospel is? It's God giving you his best while you were at your worst. While you wanted nothing to do with God, Jesus was making a way for you to be saved. He was bringing and establishing the gift of salvation, that you might believe in him and have eternal life. And that's what this Bible everywhere shows us. That it is a story of grace, a story of redemption, an intricate retelling of God's perfect plan of salvation, carried out through poor and broken people. And that includes you and me is being carried out right now by missionaries like we've seen today that will make a difference in other people's lives by retelling the gospel to other people and spreading it all over the world. And that's what this Bible shows us. It shows us Jesus. You know, there is, there are a lot of books being written right now, and a lot of them have varying differences in theology and whatnot. But I think one of the most inter- interesting books that has a very very good theological message was a children's book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know if you are familiar with this, but the introduction to this book is very profound. I'm going to read you a portion of it just because even though it's written for children, it has a very amazing message that I think even as adults or, you know, uh, budding theologians, like I like to consider myself, can learn from. Listen to what the author says. Now, this is to children, and she says, Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes sometimes on purpose no the bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes the bible is most of all a story the story of how god loves his children and comes to rescue them and it takes the whole bible to tell this story and at the center of the story there is jesus everything in the bible whispers his name he is like the missing piece in a puzzle the piece that makes all other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. You see, Jesus is like the spine of your Bible. He holds everything together, and he's what everything points to. And we must realize that this is here to point us to him, to make us realize that we can't change or save or anything like that of ourselves. But Jesus has come to do it for us. He has come to fulfill Matthew 5.48 and give us his perfection, that we may stand boldly before God and cry, Abba, Father. It's to point us to Jesus. He is your hero. Let's pray.